If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this August 5th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day. From a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down, our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Normally, hour number two is our interview hour. We're doing things a little bit differently for a number of reasons. <laughs> a lot of moving parts here. Part of it is that we weren't able to do a podcast for quite a while. Part of it is that I had an interview scheduled for this morning, but we decided at the last minute to postpone that, which I'll explain shortly. And part of it is we do have an hour number three which is an interview that I did with General Michael Hayden, former CIA director, uh, on the day. We did the interview on the very day of the Helsinki press conference between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. So check that out in hour number three. Hour number one was all of the Trump-related news. Uh, hour number two was all the news related to the stories that I'm deeply involved with, <laughs> one of which may or may not still involve Donald Trump. And I'll start with that one. And that's where our interview was going to happen, but we decided against it. As you may recall, we previously interviewed Paul Campos, who is a University of Colorado professor, who a couple months ago put out the theory on, in New York Magazine that the story that you may have heard of between former GOP fundraiser Elliot Brody and former Playboy Playmate Shara Bouchard is a fraud. That story being that they had an affair, they got, she got pregnant, she had an abortion. Brody paid her $1.6 million using Michael Cohen as his lawyer, whom he way overpaid. And then that agreement just happened, just happened, to use the same alias for Brody as Cohen used for Trump in the Stormy Daniels non-disclosure agreement. And that Campos's theory was that it wasn't Brody who had a, affair with Bouchard and got her pregnant. It was Trump who had an affair with Bouchard and got her pregnant. Now, if you may recall, and you can check it, check it out in our previous podcasts, Campos is very credible and put out a very compelling argument. And I've written, I think, three columns now about this subject, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And I will acknowledge that, I don't know if I was anywhere near 100%, but I was about 85 90% that something very close to this theory had to be true, that at the very least, the conventional wisdom didn't make any damn sense at all, that the, the cover story here, it, it just, it should be easily proven, and it's not. Like, for instance, where's the photo between Brody and Bouchard? I mean, I mean that, that, that's easily proven. Right. I mean, and there's no guy that looks like Brody at his age is having an affair with a Playboy playmate and doesn't have a photo. I mean, that just doesn't exist. So anyway, since we um, last did our podcast, a ton has happened on this story. At one point, it looked to me like this thing was about to explode because Bouchard, Brody announced he was going to stop payment to Bouchard, which is awfully weird. Why would you do that? Right? I mean, by, by the way, put yourself in Brody's perspective here. He had, His story is he had a long affair with his Playboy model, which you would think he would have some affinity for. He gets her pregnant. 
And then she has an abortion. Now, who facilitated the abort? The abortion apparently is between reading between the lines is still up in the air. But she goes through an abortion. Any normal human being would have at least some sympathy for her, right? You agreed to pay her one point six million dollars. The story's already out. She had nothing to do with it being out, but you've already been disgraced by the story. You're also super rich. Why would you stop payment? That doesn't make any damn sense. I mean, maybe you're a colossal asshole, uh, but you're, it doesn't. That part doesn't make any sense to me. There's a lot of things in the story that don't make any sense. Anyway, since our last podcast, Bouchard sued Brody for doing this, and when she sued Brody for doing this, Michael Avenatti. Stormy Daniels' attorney, made it very clear. Now, it's important to point out, for some reason, Avenatti was one of those that she sued, which also makes no damn sense. I haven't found anybody that makes any sense out of that one. How Avenatti is even part of this case is bizarre. And Avenatti put out a statement making it very obvious. I mean, he didn't even try to hide it, that he does not believe that Brody was who impregnated Bouchard. And he strongly implied to anyone who knows the story that it was Trump. And Avenatti even scheduled a, a deposition here in Los Angeles with Bichard. Now, it looked to me and to Paul Campos and to a lot of other people who have been following this very closely, holy cow, this thing is about to collapse. And then everything shifted rather dramatically. Why did it shift, though? is an open question. Now, we were going to talk to Paul this morning partially for substantive reasons, partially for logistical reasons. We've decided to postpone that. But let me let me tell you what I know and what I believe to be true and, and review what's going on here. So the Campos theory has been under attack on multiple levels in the last several weeks. The three major things that have happened are Yashir Ali, who is a Me Too reporter, it's interesting that he got chosen, did a story that indicated he had two sources that he didn't name and he didn't quote, <laughs> saying that Bashard and Trump had never met and that therefore, obviously, the Trump-Bashard theory was dead. I have learned, not through Paul Campos, although, I, although Paul believes this, I think, that the source, at least one of the sources for Ali's story, was Bouchard's attorney, Peter Stris, which is weird, especially since Stris is clearly no fan of Donald Trump. But the, the Ali story was so pathetically sourced. I mean, you use anonymous sources with no quotes. I don't know how in the world you take that remotely seriously. But then, right after that, David Korn, another ant Ali is an anti-Trump guy. David Korn is a super anti-Trump guy. Again, very interesting that he was chosen to get this information, if that's in fact what's happening. David Korn put out a story in which he revealed that a private investigator had told him that he had been investigating Brody and that Brody had gone to a particular address in Los Angeles, but he didn't know who the person was that he was visiting. It was a woman, and he gave Corn the address. And voila, the address turns out to be where Sheriff Bouchard was living. Now, if that's true, that's Eureka. At least we finally have a connection between Brody and Bouchard. That's fantastic, because I, I would love to disprove the theory. I mean, that's where I am on all these things I get involved with. I just want the truth. So if I can disprove it, then I can be done with it, get out, get the truth out there, and move on. However, that story is so weird, and I, I don't, and I've spoke with Paul this morning. Paul does not believe that story to be credible for a number of reasons. I, I, I'll let Paul get into it. Paul is planning on putting out another New York Magazine story. That's one of the pieces of news I can break for you on this podcast. He believes on Tuesday, if not on Tuesday, soon after Tuesday. But 
Paul does not believe that that story is credible. I can understand why he doesn't believe it, because if this private investigator is worth his salt, there should be tons of evidence. Like, he's, what private investigator doesn't figure out who it is that the guy is seeing? And he's looking for dirt on Brody. It's all. There's also some weirdness surrounding how and when this private investigator chose to speak to David Korn. But I'll be the first to acknowledge, if that fact is true, and I don't care if it is or it isn't, I just want to find out if it's true, that pretty much, well, it doesn't destroy for sure anything, but it certainly leads one to believe that the, as bizarre as it is, the Brody Bouchard story might actually be true. The third thing that's happened is we've now, after it was originally sealed, we've seen at least parts of Bashard's lawsuit against Brody. And in the lawsuit, Bashard's lawyers on her behalf are claiming that she was impregnated by Elliot Brody. Now that certainly is significant. Is is she lying? Are her lawyers lying on her behalf? I have no way of knowing, but that certainly leads one in the direction that, wait a minute, this Brody story, as strange as it is, might actually be true. Maybe it's possible that Brody and Bashard are the first people in the history of the smartphone era to ever decide to have a child together, because that's what's implied in the lawsuit. It's implied in the lawsuit that originally the $1.6 million was in part to take care of the kid. So so the story is maybe Brody and Bouchard are the first people in the history of the smartphone era to decide to have a kid together before they took a photograph together. That seems hard for me to believe, but okay, we're living in a strange world. I'm open to it. So there's no question that the Paul Campos theory has been under attack. Now, is it under attack because it's not true? Or is it under attack because it actually is true and there are people who need to destroy it? It is my assessment that Paul believes that that is the latter. Now, he doesn't, he can't prove that yet. And I know Paul, like anybody would be, like myself, is very concerned about confirmation bias because this story is so weird, it is possible to interpret almost every data point in whatever way you want. And therefore, it is very dangerous to start interpreting everything through the, the prism that your theory is right and you start to, you start to end up becoming the conspiracy person. And I'm an, an ardent anti-conspiracy person. So I am, I'm open to almost all things on this, but... Let me tell you some things that I know that I believe are going to come out this week based upon what Paul has told me, likely in a column by him in New York Magazine. There are two pieces of evidence that I have seen that are consistent very much with the theory that the cover story is flat-out false. They don't prove what the real story is, but I'm going to tell you what they are right now, and you can determine for yourself once this evidence comes out in the public. The first piece of evidence is that, and it's amazing, people, how many amateur investigators have been on this case. I mean, there is a colony of people who are on this case, and some of them have done some really ingenious things. And one of the most ingenious things that I have seen on this case so far is that a guy got Elliot Brody's cell phone, and he texted him. This was brilliant. This, I had nothing to do with this, folks. He did not come to me saying, hey, what do I do? Because that's kind of happened before in other stories. But this was, this was more brilliant than anything I could have come up with. He texts Brody, pretending to be a supporter of his, giving him the heads up that his real story is about to be broken in the media. Now, this is way after the cover story has become news, all right? So if Brody's story that he impregnated Bouchard is true, there's nothing to come out. It's already come out. And he's being told by a supporter, hey, I got a tip for you. Your story is about to come out regarding Bouchard. 
and Cohen. He, he drops Cohen's name in there, Michael Cohen. And what's Brody's response? Thank you. Tell me more. Now, why is that his response? His response should be, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> the story's already out there, dude. <laughs> and it's not just one response. It's multiple responses. Now, interestingly, this exchange goes on for quite a while. And about halfway through, Brody totally changes his tune and starts going into, I damaged my family. I'm trying to make amends. By the way, his wife is still with him, which is another odd data point in this whole thing. Because you would think she would have left him after finding out about this and being publicly humiliated and all that. But there's no sign of that. Anyway, the point is, that Brody's text message response is not, to me, consistent with his story being true. Then there's the really big piece of evidence. And this is so bizarre. I mean, <laughs> it's so strange. And I can't tell you everything about it because I want I want to save it for, for Paul's piece. But apparently, Shara Bouchard has befriended some of these amateur sleuths who have been looking into this case. And she has sent them audio clips via Facebook. I have seen a transcript of a key clip of audio from Shara Bouchard, the woman at the heart of this whole thing. And the way I interpret this and the way Paul interprets this and the way anybody else that I've heard, I've, I've read this to other people, like, can you please tell me, men, women, whatever, can you t please give me your interpretation of what she means here? The universal interpretation has been, holy shit, <laughs> this is completely consistent with Trump being the father. Now, she doesn't say that, but... It's remarkable. And this is, again, it's important to point out, is audio, she has absolutely no anticipation is going to be made public. But if the Trump story is true, this is exactly how she would describe it. So that's supposedly coming out, again, as early as Tuesday, if not soon after that. Here's the bottom line for me. I am far less confident that the Trump element of this story is true. But I will also tell you, there's some other stuff that's really compelling. Like, for instance, we know because of her own statements, we know from Shara Bouchard's audio statements that I just referred to, when exactly she got pregnant. It was in mid to late September of last year. On September 21st of last year, she, who lives in Los Angeles, is in New York City for no reason. Because she's active on social media. She gives no reason why she's in town for two days. She posts numerous uh, video, fo photos of her lounging around in a luxury hotel in New York City with nothing apparently on her calendar. You know who else was in New York City on September 21st? with a calendar that was exceedingly open that day? Donald Trump. Now, that doesn't prove anything. But, boy, this story is awfully odd. It, and you know who was not in New York City that day? Elliot Brody. Elliot Brody was in D.C. We have news reports showing him in Washington, D.C. that weekend. So she's in New York Trump's in New York. She's lounging around in luxury hotels for no apparent reason. Trump's right there. Again, does not prove it. But there's this story still doesn't make sense. I, bottom line, though, I don't know what the truth is, and I don't think we're ever going to know what the truth is. And I've kind of lost interest in the story from that perspective is in that, one, I don't think we're ever going to know and I've also become convinced, frankly, the Helsinki thing convinced me none of this fucking matters. That's what Helsinki and the, the Putin press conference proved to me. Nothing matters. 
Nothing. It doesn't matter if we somehow prove that Trump impregnated a, a Playboy model, facilitated an abortion, and had a, a political ally pay her off with Michael Cohen. It wouldn't matter. Yes, it would be a big news story for a couple days, but it wouldn't matter. So because we can no longer be confident, I'm not confident we're ever going to know what the truth is. And two, even if we found out the truth and it was as Paul Campos suspects, it doesn't matter. And so I'll continue to follow this. We'll probably have Paul on again after his next article. I don't know what happened here. I, I am less convinced i'm probably in the 30 40 percent range now that paul's original th theory is accurate i'm still in the 80 to 90 percent that there's something fundamentally wrong with what we're being told because it just doesn't make sense i know that paul is open to the idea that it wasn't trump but someone else in trump's orbit who was the real facilitator of this pregnancy I've already implied in hour number one, Michael Cohen has something on Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity lives in New York. I don't know where Sean Hannity was on September 21st. <laughs> I would like to find out where Sean Hannity was on September 21st. Because Sean Hannity is certainly acting like a guy who Paul, that Michael, that Michael Cohen has the goods on. And by the way, that's a story that would destroy Sean Hannity. See, that's what's interesting to me. This Sarah Bashar, and I, I don't, I'm not saying that it was Sean Hannity. All right, be clear. I'm just saying, in theory, if it was Sean Hannity, he would have far more reason to be scared out of his fucking mind than Donald Trump does. Because Hannity would be destroyed by that story or something like it. And the way he's acting regarding Michael Cohen is consistent with that possibility. I wrote a column about it, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. All right. Several other stories that I've become embroiled with. <laughs> Obviously, the Penn State Sandusky Paterno story, which is going to lead me to Ohio State and Urban Meyer in a second. I had something very interesting happen. I was in uh, Lake Tahoe on vacation, and I, um, I got an email. Because I've basically given up on Penn State Sandusky Paterno. I mean, it's always going to be part of my DNA. I've been much happier psychologically since I've given up on it. I went through the catharsis of, of acknowledging that this, this is the biggest travesty of my lifetime that's never going to be corrected and harm my career, my life, whatever. But I did the right thing, and, and I know I'm right, so whatever. Anyway, I got an email from a guy who, whose name I can't tell you. But if I said his name, you'd be like, holy shit. He is a highly respected intellectual who is known for his contrarian positions. And he's got a ton of credibility in the news media. And he asks me about some things regarding the Penn State case. And I ask, can I, can I talk to you on the phone? And he goes, sure, gives me his phone number. And we talk for about 45 minutes. And I'm always skeptical uh, on two levels when it comes to people. And this is not the first time this has happened, although this might be the, the most credible person that's ever happened with. There's always two things that I'm skeptical about. Number one, do they really know the case? And number two, are they going to have the balls to actually do anything? And it was very clear that this guy knew the case exceedingly well. Here's how well he knew the case. And, I, and this, is the, this is how I test it. I, I asked him, what do you think about my date theory, the date meaning that the entire scenario, narrative, and date of the Mike McQuery, Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno story is totally wrong to this day. And that actually McQuery witnessed this at least five weeks before he ever went to Joe Paterno, which blows apart the whole case right at, at its epicenter. So all I said to him was, what do you think about the date theory? And he says to me, I think your work there is brilliant. I think you're right. I think it was December 29, 2000. I'm like, okay. So this guy, this guy has really looked into it. He's looked, he knows the case. He's convinced. So we've passed test number one. As far as what, if anything, he's going to do about it, I'm still highly skeptical. Uh, he and I uh, exchanged probably a dozen emails since then. 
I have sent him a ton of information, which he has been very appreciative of and very convinced by. And he has told me that he is going to write about this in his next book. Now, it's going to be a small part of the book. And unfortunately, the book, much to my surprise, is not going to come out for quite a while. In fact, I told him, you know, there's a good chance Sandusky is going to be dead by the time your book comes out. And so I've been trying to convince him to do something separate from the book. I'm not optimistic about it, but the last thing he said to me was, I will, I will consider that. I think his, his words were. Um, the significance of this to me was not, he's not going to be able to change the world by writing about this <laughs> a couple of years from now in a, in a book that's not a, primarily about this subject. Uh, I hope he does reconsider and will do something separate. I've invited him on the podcast, uh, which he has not accepted as of yet. But the, to me, the most significant part of this was it was further confirmation that I'm right. I knew I was right before, but it's nice to hear somebody with that kind of intellect and credibility say, yep, you're right about this. So I'll keep you updated on that. Now, there's been obviously a lot of comparisons between the Penn State Sandusky Paterno case and what's going on at Ohio State with regard to Urban Meyer and this guy by the name of Zach Smith, who's a former, I guess, uh, well, Ohio State assistant coach who in 2015 was accused by his wife Courtney of domestic abuse and Meyer is in hot water right now because even though Smith was never charged with anything which is an important point to make even though Smith was never charged with anything that uh, Meyer lied to the media about whether or not he had knowledge of the allegations against Smith as an assistant coach at Ohio State and the reason why it was proven it was, that he lied was that some text messages between Courtney Smith, Zach Smith's now ex-wife, were shown where she was texting with the wife of Urban Meyer and indicating that she had photos of the abuse. Now, like all these stories, this gets somewhat complex. But the essence of this situation is that Urban Meyer lied and he should have done more because he didn't fire Smith. In fact, he rehired Smith after these allegations. And of course, people are comparing this to Joe Paterno. Well, my first reaction is even if you accept the Paterno myth, and I know it all to be a myth, what Meyer has already acknowledged, which was that he lied about it, is way worse than what we know Paterno did. Paterno did exactly the right thing. Now, Meyer is saying that he also reported it, just like Paterno did, up the chain of command. We don't know that for sure, but it would be a really stupid thing for Meyer to lie about. So I believe that Meyer is telling the truth about that. If that's the case, while it was really dumb for Meyer to lie to the media about it, I can conceive of some scenarios where this does not mean that Meyer was acting nefariously. And to me, the essence of this story and, the, and why Meyer is in far more trouble than he might deserve to be in is that Meyer cannot, this is just my gut telling me this, okay? And I have talked to some people who are close to this story, ironically enough, because I've been involved in the, the Ohio State Jim Jordan wrestling story. So there's some of the same people. So <clears throat> anyway... I don't know this. This is purely my gut. But it feels to me like the essence of this problem is that Meyer cannot tell the truth about what really happened here because if he does, he'll be destroyed on political correctness grounds. And what I mean by that is this. Domestic violence, people like to pretend that domestic violence is the same as every other form of violence and it's not now when i say it's not the same that doesn't mean i'm saying it's any less important or horrible i'm not but it is different and here's why it's different and no one wants to accept this when the victim is the husband's wife and she as as in this case has children she is inherently a conflicted witness 
because her self-interest and the self-interest of her children are wrapped up in her uh, her uh, abuser, right? So inherently, the way she wants it to be handled is conflicted. Sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes the woman's like, I don't give a damn if he's the father of my children or if I'm relying on his paycheck or not. I want the guy prosecuted. I want him in jail. I want him out of my life. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes, like with Ray Rice. Remember Ray Rice? Ray Rice is the guy who beats the crap out of his his wife or girl. I I can't remember if it was his wife or girlfriend, but I think it might have been his wife. Beats the crap out of her in the elevator. He only got a three-game suspension, and the video comes out, and it's horrific. And the NFL and Roger Goodell get pilloried because, oh, my God, how could you only give him three games for this? And then they increase the suspension. Well, according to Goodell and according to the facts, here's what really happened. When Ray Rice and his wife met with Goodell, she pleaded for mercy because she knew This would destroy his career, and that would harm her. And I've always felt, and I don't like Goodell, I hate Goodell, but if you're Goodell, what are you supposed to do in that situation? The victim is telling you this is going to make things worse for me. So what do you do? Well, this situation has a lot of similarities, and you also have a three-year gap between when the allegation comes forward and when she's coming public now. Well, what happens in those three years? They get a divorce, and my understanding is that the assistant coach, Zach Smith, has been screwing everything that moves in Columbus, and she's pissed off. So now you have a different victim. What she's telling Urban Meyer's wife in 2015 might be vastly different than what she is saying now. By the way, that doesn't make her a bad person. You know what that makes her? It makes her human. Again, this is me putting together the pieces of this in a logical fashion that is consistent with a story that would make some sense. Because you have to remember, Urban Meyer is not a moron. This is in the wake of the Sandusky scandal. This is still on the front pages almost... Every week, it's Ohio State, Penn State's biggest rival. (laughs) Urban Meyer and Joe Paterno were friends. This is at the forefront of his brain. You really think he's going to just say, ah, fuck it. I don't give a shit that my assistant coach is accused of beating the crap out of his wife. Does that make any sense? Or does it make some sense that maybe Courtney was selling his wife? You know, I really don't want Zach destroyed over this. Doesn't that make a little bit more sense? Doesn't that make a hell of a lot more sense? It makes a hell of a lot more sense to me. So I don't know what's going to happen to Urban Meyer. I will say he has one thing going for him in this. Well, a couple things, but one thing, he's not 84 years old like Joe Paterno. It hasn't been a quarter of a century since he's won a national title like Joe Paterno. And most importantly, like Joe Paterno, he doesn't have a moron son like Scott Paterno who is running his PR. So there's a chance, based upon all that, that Urban Meyer survives. If Urban Meyer does survive, it proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that Joe Paterno got railroaded because we know for sure. I mean, there's so many differences in this case. Like, for instance, there's actual evidence of real abuse in the Ohio State case, unlike in the Penn State case where there's none. Not to mention, Meyer's already admitted lying, in which Paterno never did. But I'll be watching that very carefully. Now, as I mentioned, part of the reason why I'm maybe a little bit more knowledgeable of the Urban Meyer case than average person is because I've been deeply involved in this Jim Jordan Ohio State wrestling case. I've written about this a couple times. You can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And this is a story that has been very frustrating to deal with. And it's so classically Ziggler. This is a classic Ziegler situation. I don't like Jim Jordan, who's a conservative Republican congressman, because he's way too pro-Trump, and he's been lying his ass off about the Russian investigation. But as you know, if you know anything about me, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if I like anybody. 
I don't care what the consequences are. If I see an injustice, if I see a situation where the truth is not winning, I can't help myself. So against my better judgment, I dive right in. And I have, I have been diving pretty deep into this Jim Jordan story. Now, for those who don't know, here's, here is the media's version of this story. The media's version of this story is that as an Ohio State wrestling coach back in the late 80s and early 90s, probably, can you believe we were talking about this, 80s and 90s? All right, as an Ohio State assistant wrestling coach, not the head coach, and as assistant wrestling coach, Jim Jordan allegedly ignored allegations of sexual abuse by a doctor at Ohio State by the name of Dr. Richard Strauss. Now, none of this has ever come forward until after the Larry Nassar case hits Michigan State, which is also part of the Big Ten Conference, along with Penn State and Ohio State, and they just paid hundreds of millions of dollars to the victims of Larry Nassar, the gymnastics doctor. No one ever said a word about this. It's important to point out Dr. Strauss has been dead for 13 years. For 13 years, he was never charged. He was never sued. There is very limited evidence that anybody ever even complained about him when he was alive. But now, all these years later, in the middle of a a heated election, just after the Nassar story breaks and all this money's on the table, Jim Jordan gets implicated as an assistant coach of enabling this Dr. Richard Strauss. And NBC breaks this story using two witnesses, guys by the name of Mike DeSabato and Dinasha Yetz. Those are the first two. Now, when I read this story, my initial blink reaction was, this is bullshit. This whole story is bullshit. I mean, Strauss has been dead for 13 years. He was sexually abusing wrestlers? College wrestlers? College wrestlers! What? Come on, people. Can we can we use our brains for just a second? Now, is it possible that Strauss was doing things that were inappropriate that in 2018 in post me too can be uh interpreted as sexual abuse? Sure. But we're talking about like you know, doing the cough uh, test a little too long, grabbing guys' balls a little too long, you know, fondling a little too long, ogling, whatever. And I'm not defending any of that, but but now we're living in a world where you you say sexual abuse under this umbrella, and everyone's like, oh my god, oh, ride for the hills. It's not all the same, yet it's all under the same umbrella. So my first reaction is okay. This has got all the signs of bullshit. We've got a guy who's pro-Trump in the middle of a election season. This sounds like Mark Foley all over again from 2006. He was an assistant coach. This is a long time ago. Strauss was never uh, accused of this publicly. What's really going on? Well, then it turns out, and this is classic Ziegler, I happen to have a connection to Denasha Yetz, one of the two guys. This is weird how this always happens. I have actually a really strong connection. See, and, and it's funny. I, I read the name Denasha Yetz. I'm like, I know that name. Where, where do I know that name, Denasha Yetz? <gasps> he played at Steubenville Big Red High School. He played at Steubenville Big Red High School just before I wrote a book about Steubenville Big Red High School football team. And so I call up my main source in Steubenville, who's an exceedingly good source, of all things uh, of a legal nature, and I'll just put it at that. I have an exceedingly good source in Steubenville. And I go, what do you know about Denasha Yetz? (laughs) Well, it turns out Denasha Yetz has been convicted of federal fraud for having stolen $1.8 million from his friends. And oh, by the way, just the week that the story came out, Denasha Yetz's wife didn't even show up for a court hearing in Steubenville because the the bank had been found to have a 30 or I forget something, a $25,000 or $30,000 judgment against her for not repaying a loan. So we've got Denasha Yetz. It's important to point out it's tough. It is tough to get convicted on federal fraud charges 
and you you steal $1.8 million from your friends. And oh, by the way, there were drug issues involved in that case too. Uh, so, so you got that combined with the fact that after that, you can't get a loan. So your wife is getting the loan, right? And she can't pay back the loan. And you're living in a pretty nice house in, a, in the best neighborhood in Steubenville. Let's do the math on this. You're fucking broke, okay? You, you are broke. You are a, a known liar, a known scam artist. And oh, by the way, Denasha Yetz, who I already knew, was a shit kicker beyond comprehension. This is a guy who grew up in the mean, ugly streets of the hood in Steubenville, Ohio. There's no fucking way Denasha Yetz was sitting around allowing himself as a college student to be sexually abused by a gay doctor. That was not happening. All right? So we now know that, I now know, Denasha Yetz is full of shit. And he's desperate for money. Well, how does Denasha Yetz get involved in this case? Mike DeSabato. Mike DeSabato, we now know, Again, this is the primary guy. This is the leader of this whole pack. He's the guy who's creating this documentary film on Strauss's abuse. He's the guy who got the media coverage. He's the guy already asking Ohio State for money in light of the Nassar case. Well, let's, let me tell you what we know about the, the Sabato. The Sabato has sued Ohio State numerous times because he lost the ability to license Ohio State paraphernalia back in like 2005. He has a vendetta against Ohio State in a huge way. By the way, in none of these lawsuits did he ever mention that he was sexually abused by an Ohio State doctor. Gee, I wonder why he never mentioned that. Because it didn't fucking happen. There's also a video of the, the, the Sabato in a bar joking about Dr. Strauss. Joking about it. He's pulling his pants down and saying, oh, Dr. Strauss is in the house. Ha, ha, ha. Let me tell you what Dr. Strauss really was. Dr. Strauss was a gay doctor that the athletes at Ohio State joked about. That's what happened. Now, again, I'm not defending Dr. Strauss. It seems to me as if he did things that were inappropriate. I believe, because I've been told by another source, that he gave prescription drugs to the guys who allowed him to get away with some stuff like ogling or fondling or whatever. I'm not defending any of that. I'm just telling you what happened. But the reality is there's no evidence that Jim Jordan had any knowledge of this. In fact, Jim Jordan would have been the last guy to be told because he was known as the straight-laced Christian dude. He's the last guy they're going to tell anything about to this, especially in the late 80s and early 90s when homosexuality is still somewhat taboo. All right? So Jim Jordan didn't know shit about this. But why is Jim Jordan's name brought in? Because that's the only way DeSabato can get media coverage for a story about a guy who's been dead for 13 years and never got charged with anything. So that so we got a merging of the incentives here. DeSabato wants revenge on Ohio State and wants money. He recruits Yetz, who's a known con artist, who also needs money. They implicate Jordan knowing that that's how the media will get interested. If you get the media interested, now you get Ohio State to crap themselves and start pooping out money. Just like Penn State did, just like Michigan State did. Now, there's another thing I know about the Sabato that has not yet been public. It is frustrating as hell to me that it's not been made public, but I know it to be true. And it's this. One of the other guys who who fell in line after the Sabato and Yetz is a guy by the name of Mark Coleman. Mark Coleman is known to a lot of people as a pro wrestler. I don't know. I don't think he was WWE. He was, I don't know, UCF or whatever. Whatever those other, he was a well-known pro wrestler, okay? He claimed he was in that cavalcade that occurred because, oh, that's the way this works. You got a couple of accusers and then people smell the money and then they all come forward. Mark Coleman was one of the most prominent people to come forward. He says, I love Jim Jordan, but Jim Jordan had to know about this. And um, and this was horrible and blah, blah, blah. And, and Coleman got used by the media as, see, see, even Jim Jordan supporters say he helped cover this up. Well, here's what I now know. Mark Coleman has signed an affidavit saying all that was bullshit. He's recanted 
his original statements to the news media. He has completely uh, disavowed himself of Mike DeSabato. And there's a second affidavit that, which is partially why the first affidavit has not yet been made public. There's a second affidavit where they're asking DeSabato to, or not DeSabato, they're asking Coleman to admit that here's why Coleman told the story about Jordan to the media. DeSabato paid him in cash through his girlfriend. Okay, so we've got, this is what utter bullshit this story is. You got DeSabato paying, paying prominent former Ohio State wrestlers to tell a story about Jim Jordan. Now, I don't know for sure if this is ever going to become public or not because apparently Coleman is nervous and he's been held up in a hotel and is his girlfriend has been pounding on him to tell the truth about this. Uh, but this is what I believe to be true. And I'm not just, I'm not just talking out of my ass. I have the affidavit. Okay. So the, the, the reality is this story is rotten to its core. And yet NBC comes out late last week with a story <laughs> that tries to make it sound like Jim Jordan was trying to get these accusers to recant, which is bullshit. First of all, it wasn't Jim Jordan. It was a Democrat attorney who just wants the truth of this matter. And more importantly than that, it was phrased. It was phrased to these guys. If, if the news media got it wrong, please feel free to correct the record as if that's never happened before. That's not intimidating somebody into recanting. Here's what really happened. Here's what really happened, folks. And it's almost always the opposite of the way the media reports it. The Sabato and Yetz found out that Coleman had recanted. So they went to NBC with this bullshit story that there's been pressure on people to recant so that the recantation would be discredited. That's what happened. And it's all bullshit. Again, I don't know if and when any of this is all going to become known, and as you can tell, I'm frustrated as hell <laughs> because <laughs> I, I see I have I've deja vu all over again with what's going on here with the Penn State case. But Jim Jordan is innocent as hell, and uh, I did an interview with uh, Glenn Beck about this a couple weeks ago. That if you if you find that, uh, I think you'll find to be very interesting. Uh, and because Beck is totally on board with this one, uh, John Ziegler, I, I think he's fantastic. Would have would have interesting mind he has all right a couple other personal notes before we end hour number two uh some sad news for those who are fans of the old old john ziggler uh and leah brandon radio show uh, both from kfi and from our uh, sunday night uh nationally syndicated show uh leah brandon with whom i no longer communicate because <laughs> mainly because of donald trump and our massive rift there I, back in 2006, I purchased a horse for Leah Brandon for her to rescue. There was a horse, a paint, who uh, she wanted to rescue. She needed some money to buy the horse, save its life, and to feed and house it for a while. So I, I purchased that horse for her. She named the horse Lucky. That was back in 2006. Uh, Leah had to put Lucky down this week. Uh, but thanks to Leah, Lucky got 12 years of extra life that he would not have had ordinarily. I reached out to Leah for the first time in a couple of years and uh, thanked her for the great job she had done with Lucky and indicated that I thought that uh, Lucky was indeed very lucky. Uh, to my surprise, Leah did respond back with a, with a nice uh, text message and a, the last photo of Lucky, which I posted on Twitter and Facebook, which you can find. Uh, if you're interested, so I felt bad for uh, for Leah, but uh, Lucky definitely got the the better end of that deal uh, with uh, 12 extra years of life, and Leah did a great job with that. Um, a couple other things I uh, wanted to mention. You know, th this summer um, we haven't had a podcast, and um, a lot's been going on. We we had a really nice uh, vacation to Lake Tahoe, which I urge you to go visit. <laughs> If you ever get a chance, Lake Tahoe is awesome. But um, this has really been a, a very difficult summer with regard to Grace Ziegler, my now six-year-old daughter. That's costing money. Yeah, that, remember her? That was. That's costing money. 
That was her on the last edition of the old syndicated radio show explaining why we were ending it. Uh, I know a lot of you are fans of Grace. And, um, boy, a couple things have happened with her. And, you know, six is a, like every age uh, when you're a child. There's a lot of changes. And she's no longer a little girl. She's becoming a very big girl. One of the things that's occurred is that she has become boy crazy. Like cray, cray, crazy for boys, which is really disturbing because I was not anticipating this at six. I was mentally preparing for this at, you know, 11, 12, something like that. But six years old, uh, that's that that's been difficult for me to grasp. She's also become an incredible brat, uh, which is very frustrating, you know, to see the, the little girl that uh, you fell in love with become uh, a brat who very likely is spoiled. And I have been warning my wife about this for years. Our, my concern was that we were spoiling her, and uh, that, in fact, might be the case. So that's been uh, very difficult. Um, I'm learning as a parent now of two daughters that parenting really is the process of teaching your kid a fantasy view of the world and then pretending for as long as possible that that real world doesn't suck. I mean, which, and that's why I've always, before I got married, I, I really, I hated the whole Santa Claus thing because you're creating this mythology that you then have to deconstruct. And one, you become a liar. And two, you create disappointment for the kid because the kid's creating this expectation for life based upon the idea that there are things like Santa Claus. Well, that we're also dealing with that. I mean, I don't know how much longer, I've always believed that Grace was going to figure out the Santa Claus thing pretty quick, although she's very invested uh, I don't know. We'll probably get through this Christmas, but I don't know about next Christmas. I'm, I'm hopeful that, even though this is incredibly contradictory and hypocritical, I'm hopeful we'll get one Christmas with, with uh, Grace and Diana, who's now 16 months old, to both uh, have a clue about the whole Santa Claus thing. And then, then we can just destroy it. <laughs> then we can crush all their hopes and dreams. But if you could just get one, one where everybody's on board, that would be pretty cool. But, but Grace has been a challenge. And um, and I figured I'd give you an update on her since uh, she's been a big part of the show. Um, um, not that anyone cares. My golf game has improved dramatically, though, uh, which I've complained about in the past. I, I'm convinced partially because I've given up on the Penn State thing. I think there's a direct correlation between that. I uh, played in a U.S. Amateur qualifier here in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago. The U.S. Amateur this year is at Pebble Beach. Uh, and this has been a lifelong dream of mine to qualify for a U.S. amateur, which I've not been able to do. I have qualified for U.S. mid amateurs for the guys that are a little bit older, 25 and older, but never a U.S. amateur because that's now dominated by college kids. And I came damn close to qualifying. In fact, I'm kicking myself because the scores were not as low as I was expecting. And uh, I went, I actually went three over the last four or five holes and missed by five shots. So I, I was in the ballpark right till the very end. It's a 36 hole qualifier. And what was interesting about this was not just that my golf game is now showing signs of life too, too late now that I'm 51, but here's what I found fascinating, and I think you might find interesting as well. Oh, by the way, before I forget, if there's anybody who, can, who has a daughter who is super boy crazed, that's part of why I mentioned this. If you have a daughter who is super boy crazed in that age group and you can come up with an explanation for why that is or what to do about it, please message me. Seriously, I'm looking for help. If you've got a daughter in that age range who's super boy crazed, I want to hear about it. All right. Uh, talk to Zig at AOL.com is my email address. All right. Anyway, so I was, because I'm playing a 36 hole qualifier in the middle of summer here in Los Angeles, I need a caddy. And I'm old. You know, I'm not in tremendous, I'm in decent shape, not in tremendous shape, not in as good a shape as I should be. So I need a caddy. I can't carry my bag for 36 holes and compete against college kids. So I had uh, procured. A really top-notch caddy. A guy somewhere in his 20s, I, he had caddied for me in a U.S. Senior Open qualifier here in Los Angeles earlier in the year. And I was really excited about it because he could, he could read greens. Most caddies suck. Uh, but this guy was really good. And he agreed to caddy for me on the, on the day in question, uh, 100% in. Uh, we we talked. We text about. We even determined the exact amount I was going to pay him, which is kind of unusual for caddies. He bragged about he's a professional caddy and blah blah blah. Uh, he followed up with me. He asked about my practice round, ready to go. Uh, and then on the Friday night before the Monday qualifier, he texts me one line saying, "I'm sorry, I can't 
be there on Monday. I got something that came up. Now, that to me was said so much about where we are in our society and as well as maybe this younger generation. I realize it's anecdotal, but this guy is definitely a younger guy. I don't believe there's a chance in the world that an older male or a female, whatever, an older person would have done that. Not a chance at all. There is, there is zero chance that if I had agreed to caddy for somebody, then on the Friday night before the Monday, and, and trying to find a caddy for 36 holes is impossible. It's impossible. I mean, there's, so the idea that, um, that you would do that, if this ever happened to me, at the very least, first of all, it would take something catastrophic for me to bail out. And even then, I would make sure as a caddy, this guy's a caddy at two different clubs, I would find somebody else that could do it. It's a Monday. The clubs are closed, right? None of that. Not only does he not do any of that, he doesn't even respond to my follow-up texts. And I'm just like, what is going on in the world? I realize it sounds like a minor issue. To me, it's way bigger, way bigger, because there's something that has been broken. Something is broken here. Your word means crap. Your commitment means nothing. If so, and my guess is that there was nothing really that came up. He just decided he didn't want to do it. And and leaving somebody out in the lurch means nothing to younger people anymore. So I found that to be interesting. And speaking of golf, uh, I correctly predicted that Tiger Woods would only have one real chance to win a major championship this year. It would be at the British Open. I, I believe for about five minutes that he was going to pull it off, and then uh, the, uh, the, the real Tiger Woods took over, which is very different from the old Tiger Woods, which is his greatest strength is now his greatest weakness, is that he never used to choke, and now he's very choke-prone, and he did choke in the final round of the British Open. He's not going to win the PGA coming up this week. His best chance to win was this week's tournament at Firestone, which he's not even going to end up uh, barring an amazing last round, being the top 10 for, might even be way further back than that. So my position on Tiger Woods has not changed. Uh, it ain't ever going to be this, anywhere near the same. And if he ever does win again, it's going to be a fluke. And I, gun to my head, I don't believe he'll ever win another major championship, uh, as sad as that might be. But I did, I did find myself rooting for him, as I often do. It would have been awesome to see him uh, win the British Open, but I think those days are are likely gone forever. All right, on that happy note, that'll do it for hour number two. Uh, make sure you listen to hour number three, an interview with General Michael Hayden, former CIA director, that was conducted on the day of the Helsinki press conference between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. You will not want to miss that. As always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. coffee oh thanks how did you sleep like a baby i don't want to get out of bed ever these sheets are mm, incredibly soft what did you say they're called again performance bedding by sheiks (laughs) performance bedding (laughs) yeah they're made from super high-tech performance fabric they're incredibly breathable so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on huh no wonder i slept so good since i started using sheiks i sleep like a baby 
No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should. Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S H E E X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com. Promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com. 1212.